paper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis on the contemporary issues in the news media. I'm Rex Smith of the Times Union, joining with three colleagues who are going to bring you some insight, we hope, into the media issues of the week. We start, of course, with Dr. Alan Chartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, columnist, commentator, political scientist. Alan, man of many trades, here you're going to talk about the media, right? Of course, as you say, of course. Of course. Rosemary Romeo is here, investigative journalist, editor, and professor. Rosemary, you doing okay these days, these strange days? I am. I'm bored, but that's a lot better than being sick. So, yes, I'm fine. That's true. You can feel lucky to be bored, I guess. And Ira Fussfeld, for a long time, was the publisher of the Daily Freeman and Associated Publications in Kingston, New York. Ira, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Rex. I was going to say nice to see you, but that won't work. So I'll have to see you in my mind's eye. To see you in my dreams, Irene. Yeah, Yeah, right. And so on and so on. Well, actually, Ira, since you're here, the timing is great because you began your career as a sports writer and sports editor before turning to news and then to the business side of the business. And one of the remarkable developments in journalism has, of course, been the way that sports coverage has moved into politics, necessarily so in a way, because, of course, the boycotts that were begun by the NBA players and then brought in other sports. But that is really different from the way I would presume you were taught to cover sports, right? Well, sure. The notion was that the sports department was the toy department and uh, we should be concentrating on the games and profiling the the players, uh, usually in favorable terms. And that began to change actually as long as the mid-50s when TV came in and the newspapers were, by the newspapers reporting the scores of the games the night before, most people already knew the results. So a group of sports writers evolved. They were known in New York City as the chipmunks, and they they used to sniff around the locker rooms and do player profiles, and some of what they found did not meet the picture that many people had of the athletes. So it has evolved. There have been places over the years that politics mixed with sports, but that said, it's largely been separated, and ESPN, which dubs itself as the sports leader, was very strict with its on-air personality about keeping sports separate from news and politics. And as you indicate, that certainly has blown up in their faces with the various movements going on and the athletes themselves becoming protesters to witness the several-day strikes that just occurred recently in a couple of the leagues. One of the elements of the change also has been that people have begun to see that sports is not just games. Sports is really big business. I remember when I was a young reporter in the 80s working for a fine downstate newspaper and realizing that they had a specifically an investigative reporter assigned to sports to do sports investigations, which has been necessary 
scary when you look at the way money's been thrown around or whether there's been management. Now, for example, one of the big stories in the sports world these days is the Washington NFL franchise, the team formerly known as the Redskins, with significant allegations of misogyny and mistreatment. Rosemary, in your investigative reporting experience, you were an investigations editor at a major newspaper. You're the head of the National Organization of Investigative Reporters and Editors. Sports investigation has been really where some great work has been done over the years, though, right? Absolutely huge. You know, the theory as it came out in Watergate was follow the money, and there is a ton of money in sports. And the politics are rife, you know, building stadiums and who supports them, how much money absolutely comes to them. And then sports have also been at the crossroads of social justice issues, domestic abuse notably, and even animal abuse, right? We've had big scandals related to athletes. And for a long time, it's just as Ira said, the sports writers, many of them were outraged by the idea that they would be asked to cover news stories. Do you remember Tiger Woods? Reporters knew some or parts of that story story and never covered it. They did not think it was their business to. His dealings with women and his private life were off of the golf courses and not a concern to them. Others saw it completely differently, that it was totally a story that needed to be covered. So I think we've made a big change in it. I am anxious to see what the shutdown in games will do to sports reportage overall. And to the fan base, I'm presuming. Alan, your thoughts on this over the years? I've, yeah. I've heard you refer to sports as being such a, a distraction from the, you know, the major yeah. issues that we need to be covering. To put it in Marxian terms, although I'm not a Marxist, the opiate of the proletariat, it's a way of diverting people. Look, let's face it, I'm not a tall man. I wasn't a tall kid. When I had to play baseball, they always put me in right field. And if I saw a ball coming out of the sky, I ducked. So I can only say I don't like sports for all kinds of personal as well as ideas about why sports take the place that they do in America. But, hey, it is a business, and we know that. And some of the people who are running the business, some of the owners of some of these teams are despicable and do play a political part in our discourse. And so I'm not a big fan of sports or people who do it, but I know how many people are suckered into it. Well, we want, we yeah. want to have heroes. This is not a new development. If you go back to Babe Ruth's era in the 20s and 30s, the reporters knew who Babe Ruth was off the field. They knew he was a womanizer. They knew he, he drank and ate too much. But they didn't report on it because they wanted the access to Babe Ruth. And they were all pals. The, the reporters and the players were who rode on the long train rides across country were friendly with each other. And so there has just been an evolution. But the issues surrounding the players that we see today have been here forever. It's just that they are now being reported, or over over the course of the last half century, they have been slowly but surely reported. Many people don't want it. They just want to watch the games, and it's a naive point of view. You have to realize that there's more to it than just the games. We had for years journalists trying to get close to John F. Kennedy, covered up his womanizing and his pains. FDR, same thing. Reporters knew he was crippled, and we rarely saw that reported or covered. And now we just have a different view of how public figures and athletes are big public figures how they ought to be covered, and their crimes and their problems are fodder for what we write.
Yes, you know, one of the major changes which Ira refers to is that the financial class of the athletes and the journalists has diverged. It was one thing when they were paid about the same, but as athletes became multimillionaires, even lower level major leaguers are paid a huge amount of money more than the journalists, their social status is different, and so they don't mingle. Also, reporters don't have the easy access that they used to have off the field to the athletes. Uh, especially if the athletes go into their walled compounds in the Hamptons and so on. So it has become, in the same way that political coverage has become, much more head-to-head, less collegial, certainly, which in politics is a good thing uh, in terms of the coverage. But in sports, it really is now much more of a contentious relationship if it's done well, if the coverage is as critical as it ought to be of these sports figures and the institutions they work for, then it's going to be kind of scratchy. And Well, generally speaking, the athletes don't need the reporters anymore. As you point out, the finances are such that whereas in the old days when athletes weren't making a lot of money, they curried the favor of sports writers who would then paint nice portraits of them and perhaps help them get off the field endorsements, etc. And now they don't need it. They, they're all paid millions of dollars and the sports writers are just pleased that they want to brush away. Now, here's where it's like politics, and this is interesting. The major league teams now all have their own websites, and the leagues all do, hiring a lot of people who are trained as journalists to, quote, report on what's going on. And it becomes, of course, propaganda. It becomes just a way to avoid the harder issues or the, let's say, the negative stories that would otherwise show up. It becomes just the good stuff on their websites. Same uh, criticism has been made about political coverage, especially of political conventions, which we've just seen. So, Alan, I want you to weigh in on this as our resident political scientist. Yeah. Political convention coverage has always been rather adoring. Was it any better this year? Have we graduated at all? I don't think so. I think that both conventions turned out to be a whole lot of nothing. Fewer people were watching in both cases, and I think that the question was whether or not it showed how disparate we were in terms of our politics. You know, the Democrats watched the Democratic convention, the Republicans watched the Republican convention, and, you know, not a lot of news came out of the whole thing. Uh, Rosemary, what do you think? Yeah, I think I've long said political conventions are themselves outmoded. We don't need them anymore. Primaries decide who the candidates are. They were long propaganda, I think is what the Washington Post called both of them correctly. They were like infomercials. I don't think they changed minds. It was spectacle. So Trump therefore won because he's just a better showman than the Democrats are, even though it was filled with lies. It's hard for people to discern what's real and not, what's important and not. I don't think we did a great job covering it, but I'm not sure that there is a great way to cover these giant spectacles. You say there's no way to cover them that wouldn't be just the way you would cover propaganda. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. All right. I was going to say it just seems like at the network coverage of these conventions now, it ought to say the following is a political advertisement because that's what it is. I mean, you know, when it used to be fun. When I was a kid, I used to watch the conventions as late into the evening as my parents would allow me to stay up because it was a spectacle. But there was also news to come out of it. You didn't always know who the nominees were going to be going into these conventions. And although a lot of it was silly and they would spend a half hour running around the arenas demonstrating, 
meeting, it was a news event, and it's certainly not a news event now. We know who the nominees are, and the networks just turn over their cameras and their signals to the political parties to run commercials for these four days or four nights. I don't know that it's doing anybody any service other than the parties themselves. Yes, Ira, but not as long. In other words, the networks aren't giving us much time over to the conventions as they used to. Right, although part of that is because of the advent of the news channels, which are you know sister channels of the network, so they're able to extend the coverage elsewhere. You know, I'm not a fan of cable news coverage and the panels of experts and so on, but the political conventions are a time when that kind of coverage is really what you need, because if you're going to have any kind of coverage, then the obligation is to greet these conventions with skepticism and critical thought, which after all is what propaganda demands. And so if the job of journalists is to question power and try to illuminate obfuscation, which as part of our task, then, then the convention is a perfect opportunity for that, for you to present to people what's going on and then very quickly have expert commentators, fact checkers, who come in and say, here's where this speaker was departing from reality. Here's what's wrong. And also to delineate the differences between the conventions. So this is once that I think the typical formats of cable news channels, the sort of Hollywood Squares approach to commentary actually kind of works out well because you at least have the commentators handy to do this. Is that fair? One of the things that we were lacking this year because of the pandemic and the change of the format is if it was a traditional convention in a convention hall, even a well-scripted convention, the floor reporters would go around and interview people on the floor, and those interviews were not scripted. And you, and you might pick up a nugget of news along the way, or at the very least, give your viewers a chance to, quote-unquote, look the people in the eye and decide for themselves whether they were telling the truth or it was just a lot of hooey, to use a technical term. A lot of hooey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, here's one area of analysis. There's an interesting journalism initiative called Covering Climate Now, and one of the writers for that, Andrew McCormick, had a piece in Columbia Journalism Review making note of the fact that President Trump has no climate plan. That is not a pejorative statement. That is just a factual statement because the Republican Party, remember, doesn't have a new platform in 2020. They just said, well, we'll go back to the 2016 platform and whatever Trump says is what our platform is. And the 2016 platform dismisses the climate threat and ridicules efforts to mitigate it. So this analysis in CJR says, why isn't the media making a big deal out of the fact that the president has no climate plan and the Republican Party is offering nothing? Sounds like a fair well, analysis, all, right? Well, first of all, let's remember that the Republican Party under Trump does have a climate plan, which is to destroy the progress that we've made in climate change. We know that. So it's really not right that they don't have a plan. They do. Their plan is to destroy what we had and where we were going, which is despicable, but is true. So I suspect everybody knows that. I thought the article was really interesting in that it said reporters were taking on Trump on his own terms. 
and he sees this as deregulation, what Alan calls pulling us back from where we were. He has framed, and we have accepted it as deregulation. We've reported on how the stock market has been happily affected by that. He's right, and journalists historically have never been good, really, at leading a movement, at getting ahead of people except maybe the abolitionists, that specialized press during the Civil War. When were they ever ahead? You know, Southern newspapers didn't lead in civil rights. And I can't think of a time when they were at the head of suffrage. Nope. Prohibition. No. It's always been people who led and the media who followed. And he's right about this. If climate change is the number one issue affecting the entire globe, why aren't we writing more about it? Isn't this another one of those subjects that the media writ large is reporting about, but it's just lost in the shinier objects that are that are out there, uh, the, the pandemic being number one and the race relations being number two and all of the offshoots of both of those stories. In short, if we're going to cover climate change more, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, what are we not going to be covering? And that's the issue that has historically been discussed in newsrooms, but particularly today, when our human resources have been cut so dramatically. Or Tyra. Well, you know what? There are a lot of newspapers in this country that have essentially eliminated their sports staff, particularly the smaller newspapers where they don't have the community sports to cover since there aren't any during the pandemic. They've essentially laid off entire sports departments. My, my former newspaper has just one sports reporter, and he's been used on the front page as well. So they're just stretched too thin. Don't you think that part of the problem with trying to cover climate change also is that it requires a scientific understanding to do it well, and it requires kind of a rigorous commitment to, in effect, be a grouch about so much that's going on? A journalist needs to look at decisions such as, well, if you're interviewing somebody about the uh, a hurricane hitting the United States, why wouldn't you be talking about these storms being more powerful because of climate change? Same thing is is true of the pandemic, which effects may well be exacerbated by climate change. So I think that part of the problem is that this requires a kind of expertise and a kind of attention that is different from the way we typically cover news. It really requires journalists to be extraordinarily capable. <laughs> well, well yeah. I'm sure you're right, Rex. I'm sure you're right. However, I think the other part of this is long-range versus short-range. Trump made a fool of himself today. He said something really despicable and really stupid becomes a headline. Our children and our grandchildren are at great risk because of climate change. We know that. It's going to kill people. It's going to kill a lot of people. And yet we haven't got the long-range perspective that allows journalists to do what they have to do. You know, it's the long-range perspective that's difficult, not the expertise. Rex, for years, journalists have covered things way out of their realm. They have become experts in, for example, municipal finance or the funding of public utilities. That's really complex and difficult stuff. Nuclear energy, it isn't getting the scientists and getting the knowledge, going back to school and learning this stuff yourself. It's having that sustained image that every story that you write about relates back to climate change. Syrian refugees is climate change. Weather is climate change. And that's what we lack. We're just doing day-to-day -day rather than let's look ahead over the next month or year or decade. That's the missing point is the vision and the frame. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, 
uh, I'm afraid that our coverage of the pandemic does not bode well for the coverage going forward on this issue because we have been frustrated at every turn by, let's say, the failure to pay attention to facts, by false reports. And as facts are pushed aside by public officials, notably by the president, you know, that suggests that we're going to have similar problems trying to cover climate change going forward, which could be even more damaging than the current pandemic. I mean, we don't know what follows this pandemic. It's the known knowns, as Donald Rumsfeld said, and the unknown, what we don't know however he said that. And I'm afraid that we're vulnerable to being manipulated because the public tends to believe the people they believe rather than the journalists. And now with journalism having lost so much credibility uh, under a withering attack from the White House, it's going to make it all the harder for us to cover something like climate change as that comes forward. Well, if Biden is elected, it seems obvious that climate change will be a big part of his agenda and, and that it will roll back to some of the favorable stuff that Obama was involved with. If Trump is elected, it's just going to be hidden and denied. And, and that's another reason why this is such an important election. The field that's got these big movements correctly is history. And you may hate cable news, but I love that they brought on presidential historians and historians of pandemics, because those are people who have studied the past, which, of course, is our guide to what's happening to us now and in the future. And journalists, journalism education, I think, needs to really be changed a lot so that we do learn to look at the big picture and to go back and see clues and to not take the short term. It's so easy to say, oh, the president's got a new snake oil he's selling today. Go buy hydrochloroquine. It would be, oh, you know, back in 1917, here's what was being pitched and it didn't work and that was the effect. And I don't know, I'm sitting here working on a syllabus for a class of journalists on covering big global issues. And I'm looking at pandemics and this is exactly the issue. What do I tell them to read, to study, to do in order to cover it better than we have? Hmm. What's the mm -hmm. model of great coverage? What does that look like? We, we, we don't think that way in the newsroom. We're too busy. Yeah. I don't know. The New York Times has been remarkable. I, I mean, there, it has its faults. But if you read the print edition of the New York Times every day of the week, as I do, I'm constantly dazzled by the quantity and quality of content. And among that content is climate change. But the New York Times is unique. There are only a couple of newspapers that have the resources to do what they do. And you're going to find that most media of all kinds, you know, broadcast, print, TV are not going to have those resources and are not going to be able to give a subject like this the attention it deserves. That said, it does give it some attention, just not the attention it deserves. That's well put. One more topic before we leave today, and that has to do with the activists who've taken to the streets. A critique has been offered by an organization called FAIR. Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting is what that acronym stands for. It's basically a progressive media watchdog group from the left that's been around for about 30 years now. FAIR has issued an analysis saying that the activists' voices have been missing from the columns in the major media and on the Sunday morning shows and on the networks, that is. So this didn't delve into community newspapers or major metros, only the Washington Post and the New York Times, making the point that, that while these organizations are good at turning to their own colonists, the activists themselves, the people who are on the streets, are not showing up as effectively. 
That sounds like just as an observer and as a reader, that seems accurate. Yeah, I might say that it's it's hard for a newspaper to get activists to actually write things. You know, writing an, an op-ed is not necessarily an easy thing. Isn't that right, Alan? You do a couple of no. weeks. Um, well, yeah, but I have to say I've been watching FAIR for years. They have some very good stuff that they do, but they're also a lobbying organization. They want more of their people, and that's what this is all about, period. I would tend to agree. I mean, if I have a stable of columnists who regularly contribute and, and who present all points of view, I would think I'm well served in my newspaper and for what I'm providing my readers. And I think the odds are good that the people who are taking a point of view are going to be talking to those same activists and making sure that they're represented in these columns. But as you point out, Rex, it's not easy to write a column. You could be the smartest person in the world on a given subject and not be able to put together three or four paragraphs and then do it every week. I'm out of Tom Cotton, and he's no genius at writing either. You have editors who can help with writing, and you can interview a person who is writing the column and rewrite it. We do that often enough as editors. But it takes a great deal of energy and direction to go and seek it, and that's what we're being faulted for. We have not sought them out to put their voices in the papers and in the, in the media outlets. Yeah, we're doing that right now at the Times Union. We actually have a new series we call New Voices, and we are getting activists. Uh, we've gotten a half dozen so far, but it does require a little more effort because people are just not accustomed to writing for the newspaper. You know, the San Francisco Chronicle has a column bylined by Willie Brown, the former speaker of the uh, California State Assembly, which is basically created by Willie Brown getting on the phone and talking to an editor <laughs> who then turns it into a piece and sends it back to Willie for his approval. That kind of work is sometimes what you need to do if you really want to get these voices into your columns. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, you don't think that something that's bylined Donald Trump is actually written by Donald Trump. You don't think that Donald Trump's speeches are actually his own, uh, except when he's standing in front of a crowd extemporizing. So I think it's fine for us to engage activists and be aggressive in helping to create the content. Yes. I agree. It's more than fine. It's part of our job. It's part of our duty, and we should be doing more of that. Terrific. Well, that is going to have to be the end of the show. That's all we have time for. We, of course, welcome our listeners. If you have thoughts, media at wamc.org. We'd be happy to hear from you and bring your thoughts to bear on the program as well. So thank you all for participating. Rosemary Armeo, Ira Fussfeld, and, of course, Dr. Alan Chartok. And we are grateful to our producer, David Gustina, for bringing this program forward. And to you all for joining us this week, I'm Rex Smith. Join us again next week on The Media Project. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living The Media stage. Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, professor emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of the Daily Free. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at WAMC.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today.
Thanks for listening. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.